the scripture reading from today is taken from Mark, uh, verses, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. In the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 820. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Who do you say I am? Well, I'm Greg, by the way, if you don't know me. And I'm not going to make you actually say who you think I am. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm just saying what Jesus said here. Not many people know this, uh, but back in 1994, I co-wrote a musical. Well, I co-wrote the music for a musical. It was called Who Do You Say I Am? I couldn't find any pictures, unfortunately. Uh, My mom still has the VHS tape, which is what's on the screen. Now, for those of you who are too young to know what a VHS tape is, just think of an MP4 physically put on a roll of black tape and then rolled inside a plastic box. And you stick these things in a machine and they would show your MP4 uh, to you through this magical invention of the color TV. Now, believe it or not, Um, Before I did this musical, I had actually acted and sang in a couple of musicals at my church. Now, before you assume anything positive, (laughs) I'm a terrible, I'm not an actor or a singer. So just to give you some context, another one of the teens who had a solo was completely tone deaf. And he kind of rapped things out. So just to give you a picture of the quality I'm talking about here. There's nothing quite as inspiring and authentic to the musical genre as a tone-deaf teen with no rhythm doing a spoken word rap of a reggae song that was written by a Caucasian Bob Dylan fan. (laughs) I mean, this was was like good stuff. (laughs) Bob Marley was like rolling over in his grave at the time, I'm sure. Needless to say, these videotapes got a lot of play in my house. Every time I brought a girl home, my mom would (laughs) bring out these tapes to, you know, show off just probably explains why you know, girls didn't stick around for long. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the mullet that I was sporting at the time. But uh, anyway, so this musical, Who Do You Say I Am, was based on, on, on a way of talking about Jesus that was popularized by author C.S. Lewis. It's three words, or four words, liar, lunatic, or lord. Is anyone here familiar with that? Oh, less people, eh? Okay. It was a big thing in the the circles that I moved in. But anyway, the idea was that if you look at what Jesus said and did, 
He could only be one of these three things. He didn't have any other options. He was either a liar, so he was just making stuff up to get people to follow him, or he was a lunatic, which is actually an offensive way of speaking about someone with a mental disability. So the premise is that Jesus could have thought he was God's son, uh, but because of a mental disability, not because he actually was. So Jesus was either a liar, or he had a mental disability that caused him to believe something that wasn't true, or he was actually Lord. Those were the only three options. So you couldn't say Jesus was just a good teacher, or a wise man, or a prophet, or just a social justice advocate. Now, though we know he is all of those things, but he isn't just those things. And of course, when using this in the 80s, one had to wisely uh, make the choice that Jesus, of course, was Lord, right? It was the only real option. Done and done. It's an impenetrable argument. The mysteries of the universe tied up in this nice four little word phrase. And as a teenager who had been raised in the church and I knew nothing else, this simple truth that Jesus is Lord seemed to be all that there was to know. It's all you needed to know. Until, of course, I began to experience the real world and realize that this one little phrase, Jesus and Lord, didn't actually answer all of the questions. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What is Lord? A Lord can be a compassionate leader providing food and safety for their people. But a Lord can also be an overlord that demands fealty under the threat of punishment. Is Jesus' lordship one that demands strict adherence to a list of rules and commandments? Or is it one of forgiveness and freedom? Does it wax and wane and go back and forth depending on how pure or focused or sacrificial people are or what kind of mood God happens to be in that day? And I began to realize that every different Christian tradition and denomination, every cultural manifestation of church has different definitions for what it meant that Jesus is Lord. It isn't so simple as just saying, is he a liar, a lunatic, or a lord? We all want to say that our understanding is based just on what Scripture tells us. But yet somehow there are all these differences, these subtle nuances and often drastic divergence, all based on understanding the same Scriptures. Who do you say I am, Jesus asks. Now on some level, the answer to that question has as many answers as there are people. And sometimes it even depends on the time of the day, but I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. So let's go back to this question uh, that Abe read for us in the Gospel of Mark. Um, To give a little context, uh, the beginning of the part of our Bibles that tells us about Jesus, um, there are four books called the Gospels in English, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of Jesus asking the disciples who they say he is, is found in three of the four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Although each of the four stories are slightly different, the point is the same. Now Mark, up until this point in the story, Jesus has called his disciples. He has done all kinds of teachings. He's performed miracles. The disciples in the crowds have been a witness to all of these amazing things. However, up until this point in the story in Mark, the only people, the only ones, I should say, who have recognized who Jesus truly is, is the narrator, the one telling the story, God, and demons. 
Those are the only things that have recognized Jesus as Messiah. No humans have yet at this point. So this is a really key moment in the Gospel of Mark. Everything up until chapter 8 has been building up to this point. Uh, chapter 8, verse 27 Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. His first question to them is, who do people say that I am? What are other people saying about me? And their reply is, some say John the Baptist. And so again, some context. Mark actually tells us in chapter 1, John the Baptist, it's Jesus' cousin. um, But he was someone that everyone, Mark says, everyone in Judea and Jerusalem had been coming to John in order to be baptized. So he was a deeply respected man uh, in that part of the world. uh, And many people saw him as a prophet that was sent from God. And then as the story proceeds, King Herod kills John. And so as Jesus' ministry takes off, rumors started to spread around that Jesus, maybe Jesus is actually John the Baptist, but he's come back from the dead. So this is why the answer, some, some say John the Baptist. We also see in Mark 6 that there are rumors that have also started spreading that perhaps Jesus was another one of the prophets who had come back. First century Judaism was fascinated with an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. And one reason was because, there's many reasons, but one reason was because, as the story goes, Elijah never died. But he, God, he essentially hopped on a chariot and rose up into heaven. So he was taken up away, so he's still alive. So there's this fascination and this hope. Maybe Elijah's going to come back again and, and um, to bring God's message to be our prophet again. And so people were saying, maybe Jesus is Elijah, come back. And then they also, some of them are saying that he's what prophets, one of the prophets. And another hero is of their faith of the Jews' faith, is Moses. And Moses has said, The Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you. And so they're looking at this verse and they go, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus was one of these prophets that Moses said is going to come again. So this is what people are saying about Jesus. That is why uh, Mark tells us those three things. Now, as we as followers of Jesus believe, he was not just one of the prophets, he wasn't even the prophet. He, was, he wasn't simply some fulfillment of this prototype, this idea or preconceived model or type. That Jesus wasn't based on something else that had come before. He was so much more than this. And Peter saw this. The disciples tell Jesus who other people say he is, and then he asks them, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, for those who haven't heard this before, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word which means anointed. It is in reference to the Jewish idea that an anointed king uh, would come 
anointed king, which is the Messiah, would come to the Jews at just the right time to save them. When this word is translated into Greek, the other main language, which is the new, what the New Testament is mostly written in, uh, the word Messiah is translated as Christ. So if you didn't know this, whenever we say Jesus Christ, what we actually mean is Jesus the Messiah. Christ isn't his last name, right? He's actually Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. When asked, who do you say I am? Peter answers correctly, right? He gives the right answer. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king promised in the scriptures. But I kind of wish Jesus had asked Peter a follow-up question. Hey, well, okay, so you say I'm the Messiah. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it might have saved Peter a little bit of embarrassment in the rest, next part of the story. So remembering that Peter, who is like all of us, He was raised in a specific culture at a specific period of time. His understanding of God and of Messiah was shaped by a variety of influences, not just by the Hebrew scriptures. So this is just one example of an influence uh, over the Jews in Peter's day. It was something called the Psalms of Solomon. It wasn't actually written by King Solomon. It was written uh, just just, uh, in the first century B.C., The Psalms of Solomon were written as a response to when Rome came in and captured Jerusalem. The Psalms of Solomon were written as a response to give hope to the people who are are now in captivity by Rome. Looking back at their old, the the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to to say, hey, this is what God's going to do for us in our captivity. And here's one section um, that talks about the Messiah. Look. Look and raise up for them their king, a son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness, drive out the sinners from the inheritance, smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to demolish all their resources with an iron rod. And it goes on and on like this. Now remember, the Psalms of Solomon aren't scripture. But they, alongside of other documents, they deeply impacted who the first century Jews expected the Messiah to be. So I don't know how you were brought up, but you know, for some people, that was the purpose-driven life in the aughts, right? A book that everyone was reading and was deeply shaping how churches and evangelical Christians in North America were thinking about Jesus. You know, maybe the prayer of Jabez, if you're like back in the 90s. I mean, Jesus Calling. I don't know what books you've read, but there are these books that come and seem to take hold of a lot of church culture in North America. And they deeply shape what we think about God, but they aren't Scripture. But we feel like, hey, this really connects us to Scripture really well in this time, right? So this is what the Psalm of Solomon was kind of like this. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah... This Psalm of Solomon is what Peter is picturing. He's picturing a king, an ancestor of David, who's going to come with strength to destroy and cast out their foreign oppressors, smashing them like taking a hammer to a clay jar. This is very violent imagery. And how do we know? How do we know that this is what was going on in Peter's mind? 
Well, the next verses. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And then after three days, he will rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at their other disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter back. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You do not have in, the, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter correctly says Jesus is the Messiah, right? He gets that right. It's a pivotal moment. But he had no real idea of what the Messiah actually was. He he had the wrong idea of what that meant. Jesus kind of says, you say I'm Messiah and you think that means I'm going to come and win battles and crush our enemies and then be celebrated, lifted up by Jews as their king. But what it actually means that I'm the Messiah is that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by my own people. I'm going to be killed. They are going to smash me like a hammer smashing a clay pot, not the other way around. And then three days I'm going to rise again. Peter was so ingrained in his understanding of what Messiah was from the way that he was raised that he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. That means he admonished Jesus. He expressed strong disapproval a warning to Jesus. And I find it fascinating, but not surprising, that Peter has such a high regard for Jesus, he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. But he was so convinced and convicted by what he was raised to believe about the Messiah, so convinced by what other people and what his tradition told him about the Messiah, so convinced by contemporary religious stereotypes of a triumphant Messiah, that he actually held his understanding of Messiah higher regard than he actually held Jesus. As far as Peter was concerned, it had to be Jesus who was wrong on this one because what he had been told his whole life had to be right. So Jesus couldn't be right. And as we know, Jesus turns Peter's rebuke back on him. And he says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I don't know if any of you were raised to have this very specific picture of who God is. But perhaps as you grow older, more experience, more time spent in Scripture and with God, you realize, oh, there's, there's some stuff that don't quite fit. Well, you're not the first one. <laughs> this happened to Peter. It's no wonder that as soon as they say Jesus is Messiah, Jesus then warns them not to tell anyone Because they would have gone out and proclaimed the wrong gospel. They would have gone on and proclaimed a Messiah who's going to have a violent revolt against Rome. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. I actually have a lot of work to do with you. To teach you and to show you who I really am. Why I'm really here. You got the title right. But you really got to learn what it means. And so Jesus walks with them. And he shows them. And he teaches this over and over again. This is just the first time of many that Jesus teaches them about his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, as you know, this isn't a one-time learning opportunity for Peter. It's not like he had this enlightening moment and now he was in the great, great understanding. We continue to see Peter get this wrong over and over again. 
When Jesus was about to be arrested, Peter takes out a sword and he tries to use violence to protect Jesus and he cuts off one of the soldier's ears. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with the sword. Peter can't fathom Jesus' arrest and trial so much that three times he denies even knowing Jesus. Peter was somewhat stubborn, short-tempered, impetuous, unable to grasp aspects of who Jesus was, but he loved Jesus deeply. And as an apostle, Peter was part of the foundation on which God's whole household was built. This impetuous, short-tempered, unable to grasp who Jesus is, guy, is the foundation on which we all have our faith. Is because Peter, Jesus used Peter to set a foundation for us. Who do you say I am? You don't need to have it right. Peter didn't. But who do you say Jesus is? This is a question I think Jesus continues to ask us today. He asks you, he asks us as a church, who do you say I am? Now, it's very easy to answer this question with who do other people say I am, right? We can read books and listen to podcasts, watch videos, study church history, and we can find ways that other people speak about Jesus. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. One place of anxiety in my life is actually when I'm preparing to preach here. What if I get it wrong? What if I don't understand God correctly? What if I'm saying something that will cause someone else to believe the wrong thing and actually be led away from the true Christ? What if I, like Peter, say something to which Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan? And so, my temptation is to simply hide behind what other people say about Jesus. To make sure that everything I think and say has been taught and believed by others who I deem trustworthy. Now, I think it's a good thing for someone in my position to make sure and to be, to be reading and knowing and understanding what different people say to make sure that, think that, that what we're saying is in line with Scripture. But to hide behind it is very different. Hiding behind it, that way if I'm wrong, I can simply say, well, I was just saying who other people say Jesus is. It keeps it distance from myself, less personal, but then it also keeps God distance from myself. It's easier to state the opinions of others than to risk saying what you believe. To risk separating yourself from public opinion, from cultural stereotypes, even when those opinions and stereotypes are coming from within your community of faith. Because here, actually, the judgment of others can be even more piercing. And so we are afraid to say what we really think. Sometimes we don't even know what we think. So it's easier. It's easier to quote off other people and to say what other people think than to spend time meditating and reading and thinking, what do I actually believe? Who do I say Jesus is? So I think when we say, you know, well, John Stott said, or N.T. Wright once wrote, Thomas Aquinas believed, Ben Reynolds once taught me, <laughs> things like that. Or I should say, sorry, Dr. Reynolds once taught me. I'm realizing that none of Ben's students call him Ben. They all called them doctor. So when I say Ben Reynolds, they don't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Dr. Reynolds, anyway, obviously a joke. But uh, I think Jesus actually says that that's great. That's really helpful stuff. 
That's really important that you are learning and you are growing. You are trying to understand and to experience me through other people and other people's experience. I think Jesus loves this. I think this gives God a joy. Keep learning. Open yourself to these ideas and other voices. Don't settle for being stuck in the small bubble of what you've always thought. I think Jesus affirms that. He affirms learning for our growth, for our maturing, all for his glory in the world. But he doesn't stop with that, who do people say I am? He says, that's what other people say about me. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, it sounds like a simple question, but I'd encourage you to spend some time today or this week thinking about the question. I'm a pastor, and when I sit and stop and just go, who do I say Jesus is? It can actually be very hard (laughs) because it's very simple, but it's very complex. (laughs) Think about that question. Who do I say Jesus is? How would I answer that question? Your answer to that question will tell you more about yourself (laughs) than it will about God. And notice that the question Jesus asks isn't who am I? As if any individual human being, an apostle or otherwise, can actually answer Who is Jesus completely, objectively? Jesus asked the question, not who am I, but who do you say I am? And I think Jesus asks this knowing that we're going to get it wrong. (laughs) Or at least we won't get it completely right. Like Peter, Jesus knows we have our own biases, our cultural stereotypes, our denominational backgrounds. Sometimes those are gifts and sometimes they're baggage. Usually it's a little bit of both. Personal experiences, hidden parts of ourselves we're not even aware of, which are shaping what we believe and how we act. Many of us who are raised in church believe things that were told to us about the Bible more than we actually believe what we've read in the Bible. We believe what people have told us more than reading the Bible itself. Occasionally, I'll hear or read someone who says, I only believe the Bible. Everything I believe is straight from God's word, and only God's word. That drives me bananas. (laughs) Because it's simply untrue. I mean, we want to strive for that, but it's untrue. I don't even need to know who said it to to know that it's untrue. No human being in history is only influenced in their belief by the pure, uninterpreted words of God. Because the words of God are always interpreted. They're always interpreted. We don't even have Jesus' words in his original language. Before we even get them, they're interpreted into another language, and then they're interpreted into another language. Now, don't get me wrong. I I actually don't think this is a bad thing. Some people may, you may, if you take offense with this, that's okay, because it's fine to disagree with me. Um, But if you want, if you do, they'll come talk to me. Let's have a great conversation about it, because I'm open to learning from you as well. But I don't think it's a bad thing. Quite frankly, I think this is part of God's design. I think this is the way God has designed Scripture and has designed us. God is too infinite. God is too much to grasp. God is more than we will ever fully know or even comprehend. What it means that Christ is the Messiah is beyond all human understanding. We can grasp little pieces of it. 
But we, can't, we will never fully know or comprehend until we are in the presence of God. Plus, God created us to be in community with others. The Bible we are handed has been handed to us through the community of faith through 2,000 years. We rely on the community of faith. We rely on others throughout history to pass this to us. Their interpretations, their work to hand this to us are part of what we have. We cannot get away from interpreting scripture in community. So it's not a surprise we are influenced by those around us, by others who have gone before us. It's not a surprise that what we believe is affected by our personal experience and our communal experience This is simply what it means to be human. We don't need to fight against this, to fight for just some objective truth that is completely beyond ourselves. Jesus made us this way. God made us this way. Jesus knew this, that it is simply what it means to be human. And so when Peter got it right, but also very wrong, Jesus affirmed what is true, but he also rebuked the mistaken established traditions of who the Messiah was to be. And he walked with people to show them the true nature of who he was. That the Messiah would suffer and be rejected, would die and then rise again on the third day. It's okay that like Peter, we're going to get things wrong, that we'll make mistakes. That will have improper perspective on Jesus at times. What Jesus wants from us isn't a perfect, indisputable doctrine. We'll all spend the rest of our lives continually growing in our understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus isn't demanding perfect, indisputable doctrine. Jesus just wants us to move towards him continually. Learning about him. Being with him. Jesus loves us. And he wants us to know him. It's not a math equation. It's a relationship, as we often say. We will spend the rest of our lives growing. How we answer the question, who do I say Jesus is, is going to change in the seasons of our lives as we mature and grow. I encourage you, if you go home, if you do, if you're a journaler, write down what you, who today you say Jesus is. And then come back to it. And write down what you think that day and come back to it. And you're going to find that you're going to mature and you're going to grow. The way that you're going to express it is going to change. And that's okay. God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. But who he is is too much for any of us to fully grasp. And so as we experience God differently as different people in community and on our own, we're going to have this growing and expansive and sometimes shrinking understanding of God. I find the more time I spend with God and the more I study, the more I feel like I actually have no idea what I'm talking about. Jesus doesn't want perfect, indisputable doctrine from us. He wants us. So let's live into this reality Instead of fighting against it or pretending it's not true, let's live into this reality with intentionality. Let's be intentional in how we participate in our growing and our learning. Being aware that it isn't just intellectual, but it is experiential and is relational. 
It isn't just information that we're cramming into our brains, but it is meeting with God, spending time in silence, experiencing the quiet and the peace of God. Let us have the humility to be aware of the ways that our biases shape our belief. Our biases shape the way that we read Scripture. And let's have the humility to open our minds and our hearts to learn from others. Let us not allow our biases and assumptions to go unchecked in how they shape the way we interpret Scripture, but invite the Spirit to interpret our biases and enliven our faith through Scripture. Let us have grace to make space for mistakes, for ourselves, and for others especially. Let us refuse to only surround ourselves with people who think like us. Instead, surround yourself with people who will share their lives and their experiences of God with you, helping you shape and mold you into Christ-likeness. Seek out godly mentors. Go to the scriptures. But while you go to the scriptures, also know that it, we need the community to help us to interpret it. So I encourage you, maintain a teachable heart. Ask curious questions. Don't take what people tell you is infallible truth. And that includes what I say and what Sam says and anyone else you hear preach here. Don't just take it as infallible truth, but instead ask questions. Seek clarity. Read the scriptures. Spend time in the presence of the Holy Spirit asking for guidance and wisdom. Yes, let's have conviction in what we believe, but let's have the humility to accept that we have more to learn and we're not right on everything. I'm probably wrong on most things. Jesus wants you to know him. And like Peter, even when you get it wrong, Jesus is never going to abandon you, but will keep walking with you, showing you who he is, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus asks you, who do you say I am? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we, we, all, we thank you that you are more than we can understand. Because if we could fully understand you, you would kind of be a wimpy, unhelpful being. But you are so much more. You are... Love, your grace, your hope, your reconciliation, you are everything that is good and even more. And Jesus, we want to know you more. So we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would continue to dwell amongst us, live within us as individuals, dwell amongst us as a community whether it's in, in our homes, in this space, or other places in our lives, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to enliven us, to reveal Christ to us. That more and more uh, we uh, can live out your love And that we, Lord, help us to do the work, to spend time and to, to reflect on this question. Who do I say you are?
And Lord, we bring that to you. We bring our, what we think of you to you and ask you to, um, to refine, to purify those places of what we think of you that are unhelpful, are unholy. And fill them, Lord, with the beauty of who you are as our Messiah, King, anointed, Son of God, true God of true God. Amen.